You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. You can go ahead and have a seat there where you are. And if you can grab a Bible, that would really be helpful for you and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> so the, uh, the third Monday in January is Martin Luther King uh, Day, and uh, that is tomorrow. So on the third Sunday in January, we take it as an opportunity for our church family to pause and to think about the gospel and racial diversity. The gospel and racial reconciliation, how these two things go together. So today we're about to step into this, and I just want us to have some time to think this issue through um, again for our church family. So Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to begin. Jimmy read the wider text earlier in the morning. I'm going to start in verse 9 and go to verse 10. So Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 say this. And they... This is the multitude in heaven. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, speaking of Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood spilled for us, by your broken body, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is God's word. In the spring of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. and his lieutenants walked into Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Birmingham was considered the most deeply segregated part of the South. It went by a nickname called Bombingham because of all the racially motivated bombings, uh, African-American churches, African-American homes. It was that city they walked into. And as you can imagine, King's presence uh, was very polarizing. On one side of the polarizing, uh, you know, that kind of happened with his presence was people like uh, Bull Connor. He was the commissioner of, of Birmingham. And he represented the group of people who were proactively working against Martin Luther King Jr. and really the work of social justice, the work of justice in terms of racial reconciliation. He represented that group of people who were proactively working against him, proactively racist. Then on the other side of the issue, so if if Martin Luther King Jr. is here, on one side you have uh, Bull Connor. On the other side, you had the white church pastors and their congregation. And it was this group of people that they were not overtly trying to oppress African-Americans at the time. Um, They were calling for patience. They were looking at at Martin Luther King Jr. and saying, will you just be patient? Will you let this work itself out? Will you please just wait? Just wait. So they, this group of of, uh, white church leaders, got together and they wrote a public letter, published it in the newspaper to Martin Luther King Jr. and kind of did that whole movement. And Martin Luther King Jr. was in jail, and when he got that newspaper, he saw that article. He wrote what has now become known as a letter from a Birmingham jail. If you have never read it, I want to ask you just to do that. You should make that a priority this week to read that letter. 
a letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, outside of the Bible, it's been one of, for me personally, one of the more influential pieces that I have read to help spur in me and to create in me just deep affections for this particular issue. And here is, let me just summarize one of the main things that this letter shows. The letter from the Birmingham jail shows that it's not just people like Bull Connor or the Ku Klux Klan, the overt racist type that are the blockades to, so, you know, to social justice happening. It's not just those people who are proactively working against racial reconciliation that keep racial reconciliation from happening. This letter shows that in the end, it was the white pastors and their congregations who were not overt racist. They were just eaten up with passive indifference. It was those people eaten up with passive indifference who in the end proved to be the biggest blockades to racial reconciliation happening. Are you seeing the picture there? This letter showing us that it was not the overt racists that were the biggest problem. It was the white moderates, the, the people who were filling up churches and their leaders. It was those people who in the end were the biggest problem. Now, let me just read a few excerpts from, the, from this letter. He says, for years now, this is in response to their plea of just wait just, just don't stir it. Don't, don't bring it in. Just wait. In the end, it'll work itself out. He says, for years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. The word wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Now speaking directly to the white church and their leaders, he says, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. Not overt racist, just passively kind of indifferent. Just it'll work itself out eventually. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block and the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but here's the main issue, but the white moderate, that's the biggest issue. People who would call themselves Christians, go to Christian churches, they're pastors and leaders. Those people have been the biggest issue. These people who are more devoted to order than to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. That these people with a shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance from our white moderate friends is much more bewildering than outright rejection from a Ku Klux Klaner. I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas, and this illustrates his point. So he uses this letter to illustrate it. This white brother from Texas writes to Martin Luther King Jr., all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually. But it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teaching of Christ take time to come to earth. In response to that letter, Martin Luther King Jr. writes this, Such an attitude, just wait Eventually, it'll get better for you. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strange, irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. 
actually time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, though, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. He goes on. This is a piercing sentence. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wills of inevitability. It comes, human progress comes, justice comes, the will of God comes in this world. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work of men and women being co-laborers with God, time itself becomes an ally to the forces of social stagnation. We must use, church, we must use time creatively in the knowledge that time is always ripe to do right. Hear that again. That time is always ripe to do right. It is always the hour to do right. His last couple of sentences here. Now, he says, is the time. Not, not wait for the, now is the time. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Now, those words were written over 50 years ago, and it is fair to say that over the last 50 years, we have made much progress in the area of racial reconciliation. And at the same time, you just have to turn on the news for a few minutes to know there is still much progress that needs to be made. And I think this particular issue of racial reconciliation, it is one of the two or three defining issues of this particular generation, of our particular time in history. It is one of the one, two, maybe three issues of our day. In light of that, I think Martin Luther's words ring out with this prophetic tone that now, not like 10, 15, 20 years from now, but now is the time to make this move. Now is the time to push this particular ball forward. So in light of that, I want to just roll through this morning with four questions. Question number one, what does the Bible say about this particular issue of the gospel and, and racial reconciliation? Number two, how is the church universal doing? How, how are we doing as a church? Number three, why does this particular issue matter? And number four, what are some steps that we as a church family can take forward? So I'm just going to roll through those, those four questions. Here's question number one. What does the Bible say about this issue? It says a lot more than I'm about to say. So let me just preface with that. But I want to point you to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And I want to give you at least two things the Bible says out of this particular passage. So in Revelation 5, 9 and 10, here is one thing that we see in this passage. We see the intent of God. We see what God is up to in the world, what God is doing in the world. So I'm going to reread this passage, and as I'm reading it, why don't you think about what is this passage showing us about God? What is it saying that God is up to? What is it showing us about the heart of God? Starting in verse 9. <clears throat> and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And Jesus, by your blood, you ransomed a people for God the Father from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Now, what is that showing us about the intent of God? Here's how I would summarize it. God's intent is not to rescue one people from one tribe, one nation, one language, or one people. That is not God's intent. God's intent is not one people from one nation or one culture. That is not God's intent. Rather, God's intent is to rescue one people from every nation, from every language, from every tribe, from every people. It's one people called the church from all cultures and all colors. That's the intent of God. That is what God is after. That is what God is doing in the world. Now, I, I want to give just a quick biblical survey of this. There's so much more we could say about it, but let me just point out a few places in the Bible that show that God, this is what God is up to, that God is up to making a people for himself and that people being represented from every nation, tongue, and tribe that make up planet Earth. Let me just show you a few examples. All the way back to Micah chapter four. This will be on the screen for you. This is Micah. He's a minor prophet. So he is a prophet giving this prophetic vision of what the kingdom of God will one day be like. And here's how he says it. In, in chapter four, verses one and two, Micah says, it shall come to pass in the later days, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to the house of the Lord, to it. Verse two, and many nations, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Do you see what Micah is saying? Here's his prophetic vision of the kingdom of God. He's looking at the future and here is what he is seeing the kingdom of God is gonna be like. There's gonna be this moment where the nations are flowing to God, where God has made a people for himself and that people are not just made up of a nation, a culture, but of all cultures and all ethnicities and all nations. That is what Micah is laying the foundation for. He is prophetically looking in the future and saying, that is what the kingdom of God is one day going to be like. Then you get to the Gospels, and you, got, you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the end of Matthew, Jesus gives them marching orders for the church. And he reiterates what Micah has said when he looks at the church and says, Church, this is what your job is. You need to go and make disciples of who? All nations, not of your nation, not of one nation, but of all ethnicities, of all nations. Jesus is just echoing that prophetic vision of Micah. This is what we're to be about, church. Then you get to the book of Acts and, and the winds of revival are beginning to swirl. The spirit comes down in Acts chapter two, anoints Peter's preaching. And in Acts chapter two, the spirit of God saves people. And in that moment creates not a homogenous church, but a diverse church. A church made up of various ethnicities. That's what happens in Acts 2. Then you get to Acts chapter 6 and you've got the first moment in this diverse church where you've got problems beginning to rise up because of the diversity. Like when you get a lot of people from a lot of different cultures in one place worshiping Jesus together, there are problems that come up from that. You get the first one in Acts chapter six. Then you move to the epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul. And over and over and over again in the epistles of Paul, he is addressing the various issues that come up when a local church representing God's heart for the world is diverse. 
So in Romans, he addresses issues stemming from churches, local churches being diverse. In 1 Corinthians, he addresses issues stemming from local churches being diverse. In Philippians, he addresses these issues. In all these places, he is pressing the good news of Jesus down into the issue of racial reconciliation. In Galatians, he addresses the issue of of racism and prejudice. Uh, If you remember in Galatians chapter 2, Paul confronts Peter because Peter is acting in a racist way. And and Paul looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're acting in, in a racist way. And here's what that means. You are out of step with the gospel. That when, when you are being racist, when you are acting out in those sort of ways, it means that you are working in a way that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now let's just soften the words for a moment because I would just anticipate that Peter, like many of us, would have looked back at Paul and said, but Paul, man, I'm not racist. What are you talking about? I'm not, an, I'm not a racist person. So, so let's just soften the language. We can say it this way. I think this would probably represent how Peter felt. It wasn't that he was trying to overtly be oppressive to people. I think Peter would probably have said this, I just prefer these people and not those people. Is there anything wrong with that? I just want the church to have these people in it, not those people in it. I just like these people in it. When I think about a Friday night, I would just rather spend time with these people, not those people. And Paul is looking at that and he's saying, yes, it's that favoritism right there. What you want to do with your Friday night, what you want your church to look like, it's that favoritism right there that is out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's probably the clearest um, teaching of Paul on the gospel and race. In Ephesians 2, Paul makes this point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one unique power in the universe that can take two deeply divided people. In, In Ephesians 2, it's Jew and Gentile who can take people who hate one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one power in the universe that can take these two divided people and make them one. It's the only thing in the universe that can do that. It's the only means in the universe that can make that happen on a deep, profound level. Now, let me be clear here. Paul is not saying that racial reconciliation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus came, he lived perfectly, he died, and he rose again. And Jesus' life, here's the point of Paul, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has profound implications for race and racial divisions. It is the one means in the universe that can take divided people and make them one. That's Paul's point. Then you get to Revelation. We read Revelation 5 earlier, that's the heart of God. But then you get to Revelation chapter 7. This is going to be on the screen for you. And have you ever had a moment where you're like, man, I would love to know what heaven's gonna be like one day. I would love to get a clear picture. What is it gonna be like? When I read the Bible, it's as if the Bible gives consistent teasers, but it doesn't fill in many of the blanks. It says, hey, it's gonna be better than your imagination. Now use your imagination, let's dream about it. I mean, it's it's halfway frustrating, but there are moments in the Bible. Revelation 7 is one of these where we get concrete and clear pictures as to what heaven will be like. When you think of the question, what's heaven going to be like? Revelation 7 should inform your view of heaven. So Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 say this. Here's heaven. If your heaven doesn't look like this, you have the wrong heaven. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They were all standing before the throne 
And before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. If your heaven doesn't look like that, I'm gonna say this again, you've got the wrong heaven. And can I just tell you what's not gonna be in heaven? In heaven, you're not going to have white churches, black churches, Hispanic churches, Korean churches, Asian churches, and you just fill in the blank of all the other types of churches. You're not gonna have that. You're gonna have all of these distinct ethnicities, all of these distinct cultures. You're gonna have them all in one big worship service, worshiping Jesus together. That's what we're gonna have in heaven. Now, here's the issue. If that is going to be heaven, shouldn't we be about getting a little foretaste of that now? I mean, shouldn't we be about that now if that's, what we're, if that's what's in store for you? I think we would all do ourselves a favor to get used to that now, to start working toward that now. This is God's intent. It's a people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people. Now the question becomes, what is God willing to pay to see that dream realized? If that's the intent of God, what is the cost of God to make that happen? What is God willing to sacrifice to see that ambition realized? Revelation chapter five, verse nine answers that question. What is God willing to sacrifice to see this happen? Verse nine, for you, Jesus, you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed for God, for God from every tribe and, and language and people and nation. What is the cost that Jesus is willing to pay to see this intent come to fruition? Here's, here's the sacrifice. God the Father is willing to send his son to earth and see his son slain so that a diverse church can be created. That's what Jesus is willing to pay for. it. That's what God the Father is willing to sacrifice for it. The rescue of men and women from every race and ethnicity and color and culture is so important to God that he had planned and purposed the death of his son to see it happen. Now, let me just anticipate this objection. I anticipate that there are some in the room who feel this when we talk about the gospel and racial reconciliation, that you feel something welling up in you that says, but, but why should we care this much about, it? I mean, what, seriously, why should we make this a big deal in our church? Answer. Because when I read the Bible, it sure seems to be a big deal to God. That's the answer to that. I'm not trying to rip something out of the Bible and make it a hobby horse. I'm trying to read the Bible and learn what is a hobby horse to God. And whatever his hobby horse is on, I want to be on those horses. That, that's how I want to approach it. And I'm just saying, when you read the Bible, you can't get around. God wants a church of every nation, tongue, and tribe. That is what God is after. He sent his son Jesus to die for that. And if that is that important to the heart of God, I think it should be that important to us. See, part of what it means to grow up into maturity as a Christian is that more and more and more, the things that shape our heart are the desires of God's heart. And if this is a desire of God's heart, that should be shaping and putting ambitions and hopes and dreams for that in your heart, in my heart. This is what the Bible says. Question number two. How's the church doing? How's the church doing? 
If Revelation 5, 7 through 9 shows us this is the heart of God, this is the intent of God, this is the cost that God is willing to go to see that ambition realized, how's the church doing in following through on that and being co-laborers with God in that dream? If you evaluate churches based on an 80-20 rule, which this is kind of the way that, that, that sociologists do this, they say, Here, here's the criteria for being a diverse church. There is no culture or ethnicity in that church that represents more than 80%. So whatever the dominant ethnicity is in that church, if that's Korean, if that's Hispanic, if that's African American, if that's white, there is no dominant culture that represents more than 80%. In other words, minority cultures in that particular church would be at least 20%. 20% or more. That makes sense? That's the line that says you have hit the diverse mark or not. If that's the line we're using and we take everything that calls themselves a church in America, everything, so that's a big wide category, everything that calls themselves a church in America, 8% of churches would qualify, 8%. Now, if we shrink the, the who's a church in America down to Jesus-loving churches, churches like ours, that we're saying, we love Jesus. This thing is about Jesus. Churches that, that think and feel that way about Jesus. They're Jesus-loving churches. If that's the, the swath of churches we're talking about, then out of that swath of churches, 2.5% would be diverse. Out of every 200 churches, five of those churches would be considered diverse. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this 50 years ago, but he said, we must face the sad fact that at the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing praises to Jesus, right? That we stand in the most segregated hour in America and the most segregated school is now Sunday school. That should be lamented by all of us. You know, when I think about what the goal of any local church should be, this is the way I would talk about it. The goal of your, that, any particular local church should be to look like your area, to look like your community. So if your, whatever diversity is represented in your community, your church should represent that diversity in your community. And studies over and over and over again show that churches fall way short of looking like their community. And here's the travesty, hear me on this. The main travesty in that is not just that churches are not diverse or, you know, pursuing diversity. That's not the main travesty. The main travesty among churches is that churches don't care about pursuing diversity. It's just not a part of the DNA or ethos. Churches don't care about it. That's the main travesty. That at the end of the day, the government cares more about racial reconciliation than the church of Jesus Christ cares about it. That's the travesty. So, I mean, just look at that number up there, 2.5% of Jesus-loving churches, and ask yourself the question, in light of, of Revelation 5, in light of Revelation 7, in light of God's heart for a diverse church, that he sent Jesus to die for a diverse church, what do you think that number does to the heart of God? I can't help but thinking God grieves at that number. That God, God laments that number. Now, let me press this one step further. And this is a really important statement that I'm about to say. So I want you to make sure you connect this dot. 
I think that racial strife is a problem in our country. Here, and here's the reason. Because racial reconciliation has not been a priority in the church. Let me say this again. Racial strife, it is a problem in our country. Unless you're under a rock and just totally oblivious to these issues, you'll know that. Racial strife is a problem in our country because racial reconciliation has not been a priority in the church. Racial strife, now hear me on this, it will never be solved by governmental policy. We've tried them all. It will not be solved by governmental policy. There will never be a day that the the government announces a policy and then America looks at that and says, problem solved, we're all good to go now. There will never be a day that that happens. The only power big enough, this is Ephesians 2, the only power big enough to bring two divided cultures and many divided cultures that make up American society, the only power big enough to bring all of them into one place and to give unity in the midst of all of that diversity, the only power big enough is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hear me on what I'm about to say next. Because the church has not prioritized racial reconciliation, sadly, the church of Jesus Christ in America has kept from this issue of racial strife the only thing that has the capacity to solve it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see the issue there? Because the church of Jesus Christ has not prioritized, let's get about the work, let's co-labor with God in this particular area of diversity and racial reconciliation. Because the church has not prioritized that. And that's the white church, that's the black church, that's every church out there. Because the church has not prioritized that, it means that the church who has the one thing that could solve the problem has kept that thing away from the problem. And that is a sad thing, isn't it? That the gospel of Jesus Christ has not been able yet in America to actually put its healing balm and its healing medicine into this particular area and issue. And man, Stonegate, I just want you to hear this. I am praying that we would be a church who fights for that, who co-labors with God for that, who prioritizes that who takes this particular moment in the history of our country and in the history of the world. And I think it's one of those defining moments. This is one of the defining issues of our day. And there is a sense that the Spirit of God has set a a set of circumstances in motion to make right now a ripe time to get this issue done. And I'm just praying that we would have a heart that wants to step into that, that we would have a heart that dreams about that, that longs for that, willing to co-labor with God for that. This is how the church is doing. Short answer, not very well. Number three, why is this important? Why is this important? And let me just give you two of the many things that we could talk about in answer to this question. Why is racial reconciliation important? Let me just give you two quick ones. Number one, first reason is the changing landscape in both our country and our community. The changing landscape. So it's important that you get a sense of how our country is changing. Up on the board, I'm going to give you a few statistics to help you get a sense of that. Today, minorities make up roughly one-third of the U.S. population. And that 30% is expected to grow by to 50% by roughly the year 2050. So in the next, call it 25 to 30 years, minorities will actually be a majority in our country. 
Secondly, by 2023, minorities will comprise more than one half of all children in the United States. Next, the Hispanic population is projected to triple from 46 million to 132 million by 2050. That's moving from 15% of the U.S.'s total population to roughly 30% of the U.S.'s total population. Lastly, the black population is projected to increase from 41 million people, roughly 14% of the U.S. population, to 65 million people by 2050. That's roughly 15% of the U.S. population. That's the national landscape. Now, let me kind of boil this down. You can just see... Let me just summarize that, that our country is changing in many profound and very deep ways. Secondly, though, let's talk about that on a communal level and get that closer to home. And I want to show you a picture. I showed this about a year ago, but I want to show this to you one more time. A researcher at the University of Virginia uh, did a map of the U.S., so a map of all 50 states, and we've got roughly 300 million people in America, something like that. He put a dot on the map for every person all 300 million of us, he put one dot on the map. And the dots are color-coded by ethnicity. See the picture? So it's a map, one, one dot per person. Dots are color-coded based on ethnicity. So the ethnicities represented are the, the blue dots are for white. The green dots are for African Americans. The orange dots are for Hispanic. The red dots are for Asians. And the brown dots are for everything else that makes up the U.S. population. Now, um, it's very informative. You can go to it. If you just kind of Google those words that I just threw out, you'll find all that. It's really just informative and fascinating to look at the layout of the U.S. But I want to zoom this down into the Dallas area. Midlothian is down there at the bottom of it. This is kind of the DFW area, kind of from a a broad perspective here. And I want to just make one simple point about this map. If you take that blue uh, circle down at the bottom where Midlothian is, there are many blue dots. It's the overwhelming majority of the people in Midlothian are blue dots. Now, I just want you to look up 67, kind of in that sort of a way, and I just want you to get a sense of what is around us and when suburban sprawl happens, what is coming to us. And the simple point is this, Midlothian is about to have a lot of dots added that are not blue. That's a simple point. It is about to be much more diverse in our future than we are right now. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Does that feel destabilizing to your personal kingdom? Or does that feel like this? What great possibilities for the kingdom of God. Man, what unique opportunities the Lord is giving our church family in this happening. In all of the the multiple colors of dots moving down to Midlothian. Man, what great opportunities for the kingdom of God. And I'm just praying for us as a church family that we would have that sense of not destabilized personal kingdom sort of mindsets, but we would get a sense of and begin to dream for the unique possibilities that the Lord is giving us as a church. To model diversity. to, To do this thing, to get this ball down the court in our church. So that's reason number one. Our country and our community is changing. And if we're not careful as a church, we will miss this God-given opportunity. And I don't want to miss it. Second reason why this is important is embracing oneness helps us see more of Jesus. Embracing oneness. Us being a diverse church 
helps us see more of Jesus. Let me try to explain this. If you can picture every Christian alive today, we're in one big arena and the history of redemption is down on the platform and we're seeing it play out. Every Christian, one massive arena, right in the middle of the arena is the history of redemption. We're seeing the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We're seeing in Genesis 3, God make that promise and I'm gonna send one that's gonna crush the head of the serpent. We, we get into Jesus, that, that you know, God sending the, his son, Jesus, perfect life, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead. We're seeing just the history of redemption play out in one day, Jesus coming back for his bride, the church, his diverse bride, the church. We're seeing all of that play out. But in this arena, we are seated by ethnicity. So section M are all the white folk. Here's, here's that section. Section P is all the African-American. It's all that section. And you just have all of, these, all of these sections by ethnicities. Now just imagine what's happening in that moment. We are seeing the history of redemption unfold from our particular angle. But here's true of every ethnicity, regardless of where you're seated in the room. If you're looking at the history of redemption from your particular angle, there's a whole thing that you're not seeing from the other side of it. Do you see the picture? From the back of the stage, you're just not, you don't have that vantage point. You, all you can see is from this perspective. You're not seeing from that perspective. You're not seeing from this perspective. You're not seeing from the reverse perspective. You're just getting your particular view of it. But when one diverse church comes together and we get to learn from our brothers who are seeing it from that perspective and our brothers and sisters who are seeing it from that perspective and our brothers and sisters who are seeing it from that perspective, everyone then in that moment as we worship Jesus together in one diverse church, we are now learning from one another and we are all seeing more of Jesus together. Do you see the point? Maybe we could say it this way. Us being a diverse church is not just so that people can see outside, the watching world can see the unique power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring diverse people together. That's one reason, but it's not the only reason. Maybe even a better reason for all of us in the room is so that all of us collectively can now see Jesus with more clarity. That's what's at stake in us embracing oneness. That's what's at stake in us pursuing diversity in our church family. Now, let me just go on one quick tangent and address this particular issue. I have heard many, and especially the white community, say stuff like this. Why can't we just be colorblind? Now, I, I just want to address this in the most loving way that I can. And, and the main thing I need to say to that is because God isn't colorblind. In Revelation 7, he is not saying, hey, here's a multitude and they all look the same to me. It's not what he says. He says, nope, there's a multitude and I see all the ethnicities there. I see all the tribes. I see all the languages. I see all the cultures. I see all the nations represented. I see them all. God is not colorblind. I, we've got a, uh, a little baby African-American boy in our home right now. And if he stays in our home for the long haul, it would be a travesty if he grew up and thought, hey, I'm white. That would be a travesty for him to think that. You know why? Because he's not. He's got beautiful ebony skin that I love. Absolutely love it. And it would be a travesty if, 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 if he grew up thinking that he wasn't that. 
See, God is not colorblind. And see, the, the goal of, of a church in diversity is not, hey, let's just act like we're not from our own little ethnicities and cultures. Let's just sweep all of that aside and let's just act like we're one big homogenous unit. That is not pursuing diversity in a church. Pursuing diversity in a church is when a church looks at all the unique cultures and ethnicities, and hear this, doesn't sweep over them pretending like we're colorblind, but celebrates all the unique cultures that make up their church. They celebrate all of those cultures. They, they celebrate and lift up all of those cultures and learn from all of those cultures and benefit from all those cultures and learn about things that they see about Jesus. And from our vantage point, we have a hard time seeing about Jesus. That's what a church should be pursuing in diversity. Not being colorblind, but being celebratory of the many races and ethnicities and cultures that the Lord has created. Last question, and we're landing the plane. What are our steps forward? Let me just give you a few steps forward for our church family. What are our steps forward? Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, let's remember the good news of Jesus. Let's remember the good news of Jesus. It is the only thing that has the power to take divided people and bring divided people together. To take different people and to bring different people together. It's the only thing that has the power to do that. And hear me, it is the only thing that will soften all of our hearts in the ways that all of our hearts need to be softened if this is ever going to come to fruition. It's the only thing that'll do it. And so let's remember the good news of Jesus. Let's remember that Jesus lived perfectly for us. He died in our place for our sin. He rose from the dead and he did that to rescue and redeem a diverse church. Let's remember the gospel. Number two, let's pray for this. This is not, our church becoming diverse is not going to happen or continue to happen apart from the power of God landing on our church in a very unique way. That is our only hope for this, which means we are dependent, which means we need to be praying and interceding and begging the Lord to do this among us. It's not gonna happen because we preach a sermon on it. It's not gonna happen because we cast vision for it. The only way it's going to happen is for the Lord to come in this place and to wreck our hearts in such a way where he does it. So we're dependent upon that. Now in saying that, we should celebrate what God has done already in our church family. As we currently sit here, six years in as a church, the Lord has made our church family look like presently our community. Right now, we, we're, we're presently a makeup of our community. But hear me, this is why we all need to be interceding and praying for our church in this. Our community over the next 10 to 15 years is about to become much more diverse than it is now. And part of what we are doing right now is laying the tracks so that in 10, 15, 20 years, our church can continue to look like our community. Do you see the picture? So let's pray that those tracks would be laid, that our hearts would be softened, and that we would be a people who are actually pursuing this. So let's pray for this together. Number three, let's pursue it corporately. So as a church family, corporately, we're gonna have to pursue this. This does not just happen. It doesn't happen just because we have good intentions. It has to be pursued by us as a church. It has to be pursued in our staffing. And we want a leadership team, a staff team at our church that is diverse. So pray with us that the Lord would bring us that. The Lord would do that here. The Lord would give us wisdom as we pursue that. It's also gonna be pursued corporately in our style. That means our music. That means the setup of our services. All of that is going to be 
intentionally plan to accommodate multiple ethnicities. We are working hard on doing that. We're trying to learn everything we can as to what that means and the best ways to do that. But at its core, do you know what that's going to mean for every person that goes to our church? That's going to mean that we are all going to have to die to many of our preferences. That you're going to have to die to many of your preferences if we want to see diversity happen here. Now, let me just anticipate one objection. The objection goes like this. Why should I have to die to my preferences? I would anticipate that that is in many of us in the room. Let me give an answer to that. The answer to that question is this. The reason you have to die to many of your preferences is because God has called you to marry a diverse bride called the church. That's the reason. That God has called you to marry, not a homogenous church, but a diverse church, that bride. Now let's just take the the marriage metaphor. Can you imagine a guy on his wedding day looking at his wife and saying, hey, I'm gonna marry you, I'm in. But here's one thing that we just need to establish this right now. You better not ask me to die to one of my preferences. I'm gonna do what I wanna do and get what I wanna get. Can you imagine that? If, if a husband does that in that moment, that their marriage is over before it even started. Now, can you just transfer this over to the church now? Can you see how crazy it is to even ask the question, why would I have to give up any of my preferences? The reason is because you're married to a bride called the church. And when you're married to a bride, you have to now take into account their preferences. And you have to learn what it means to serve their needs and wants. That's all of us in the room. We're going to have to learn what it means to die to our own little agendas, our own little preferences if we're going to see this happen. And uh, just a quick word to the minorities that make up our church right now. I want to look at every one of you and say, first of all, I love you so much and I'm so, so thankful for you. And I know that as, you know, up to this point in our church's life and you being here, you are the one who has died to almost all the preferences. And I want to acknowledge that and say thank you for that. Thanks for hanging in there with us and being patient with us as we're trying to grow in this area. And the second thing I want to say is we need your help. If the Lord is ever going to take this church family to the land of diversity, this church to be a diverse church continuing to represent our community, if that's ever going to happen, it is going to require the help of every minority in this room. So I'm just looking at you asking, would you please help us? We want your input. We want to learn from you. We want to position ourselves as humble learners before you. And then fourthly, and we'll kind of wrap it up here. Let's pursue it personally, not just corporately, but we have to pursue this ambition personally. Every one of us in the room is going to gravitate towards sameness. Who you hang with, what you, who you do like, you're going to gravitate towards sameness. That is every person in the room, regardless of what ethnicity or culture you, grow up, you grew up in, you're going to gravitate to people who look and feel and think just like you. Which means if we're ever going to get outside of that, we have to pursue that very intentionally. Let me just give you a couple of ways that I think you can pursue that intentionally. Number one, you can pursue diversity at your dinner table. The goal of Stonegate Church is not to have, just have a diverse worship gathering. That is not our goal. The goal of Stonegate Church is that we would have diversified dinner tables. That who shows up on Friday night at your house is a diverse group of people. People who don't think like you and and see like you, their backgrounds aren't like you. We're trying to get that into our dinner tables. And hear me, that is the only way when our dinner tables are diversified, that is the moment when our church will then become very diversified. 
but it's dependent upon our dinner tables. So will you just take a minute to think about the last six months of your life and your social calendar? Who has been on your social calendar? And ask yourself the question, are there any people on your social calendar who don't look like you and think like you? Anyone? Doesn't look like you and think like you. And can we just have a moment here before the Lord of, if you're looking at your social calendar and you're realizing it, it all, that everybody on there looks like me, can we have a moment right now where we look at the next six months and ask the Lord, what would it look like for that to change? For my social calendar to have people on it that don't look and think like me. What would it look like for me to actually be proactive in this cause? And hear me on this. I am not saying to you and everyone in the room that racial reconciliation has to be the number one priority in your life. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, will you please make it one of the emphasis of your life? One of the major priorities of your life. I'm asking you that. Will you make this one of the priorities that you have? The second way it can be pursued is by positioning yourself as a humble learner, as a humble learner. The church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place for the various ethnicities to come together and learn from one another. Should be the safest place for that to happen. And we wanna pursue that. Let me just talk to my white brothers and sisters in the room. White brothers and sisters in the room in particular need to humble themselves and position themselves in the posture of a learner. We in particular need to do that. Most, unless your situation, you're growing up is unique in some way. If you're a white brother and sister in the room, your racial IQ is so much lower than you know it is. Unless the Lord has done something very unique in you, your racial IQ is way, it's actually way down there. It's way down there. And the problem is we don't even know it. The reason we don't know it is because we've always been in the dominant culture, so we don't even have a paradigm to think about what life would be like in the subdominant culture. Don't even have a paradigm to think about that. You know, racial ignorance is a luxury of those who are in the dominant culture. And the only way you get out of racial ignorance is to position yourself as a humble learner. It's the only way it happens. When I think about my life, whiteness has never seemed weird to me. Whiteness has just always seemed normal to me. Like the rooms I go into, the places, it just always seemed normal. And the only way that will not seem normal is for you to proactively fight against that. For you to position yourself as a humble learner, for you to invite people into your life, pursue people and getting into their life who are different from you so that you can learn. White brothers and sisters in the room, we need to come with much fewer answers and many more questions. We need to position ourselves in the place of a humble learner. Maybe we could say it this way, and this is really for everyone in the room. We need to move beyond saying, I'm not racist. And we need to get to a place where we are saying, I'm actually anti-racist. I'm, actually, I'm, I'm not just passively indifferent to this issue. I'm not just like not racist. I'm actually pursuing peacemaking. I'm actually pursuing bringing people who are divided into oneness. I, I'm actually pursuing, I'm actually co-laboring with God to bring a little Revelation 7 down to this earth so that just maybe in a decade or two from now, the idea of a white church, of a black church, of an Hispanic church, of a this church, of a that church would be unintelligible to people. I'm pursuing those sort of things. And I'll just finish with this. 
just fighting against that passivity and that word wait. Hear it again from Martin Luther King Jr. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. The time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time. And I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Amen? Let's pray. I want to give you just a moment there to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. And Just open yourself up to the Lord now and just say, Lord, what, what would you have for me out of this? What would obedience, what would next steps look like in this? And as you think about the storyline of the Bible as a whole, one way to see the storyline of the Bible is through the lens of race. That on the most fundamental level, the Bible clarifies that ultimately there are only two races. There is the race of those who reject Jesus to their eternal ruin, and there is the race of those who receive Jesus to their eternal glory and benefit. There are those who Reject Jesus. That can come in the form of a fist or a warm smile. But there are those who reject Jesus to their ruin. And some in this room, your whole life has been spent thus far rejecting Jesus. And there are those who receive Jesus. And wouldn't it be a wonderful day if you're, if right now you're in the race of those rejecting to take that step of faith by confessing your sin to the Lord and by throwing your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, wouldn't it be a great day to make that switch? To become a part of the redeemed, the rescued, the saved. God right now is arms wide open, ready to embrace you. So if that's you in the room, if the Lord is stirring in you this morning, man, this is your moment. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait another week. This is your moment to cross that decisive line, to take that big leap toward Jesus. And if that's you, take that card under your seat, that um, black section, fill that out, check that box, establishing a relationship with Jesus. And when we pass the offering baskets around in a few minutes, put that card in that basket. And man, we'd love to start that journey with you. And for those who are sons and daughters of God, what are the next steps of obedience the Lord would be asking of you? What does it look like for you to go from, I'm not racist to, I am anti-racist. I am a pursuer of reconciliation and peace. Father, will you give us clarity on that? Lord, I pray you'd help our church family corporately in this pursuit. And Lord, I thank you for how you have blessed our church in this thus far. Lord, will you continue to pour out your grace and mercy upon us? 
And Father, I pray that you would bless our individual pursuits of that. Lord, that you would give us diversified dinner tables, diversified friendships. So Lord, will you help us? It's in your good name I ask that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.